Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 117, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Back to school without a teacher? Just how hard is it for rural schools to find teachers at the start of the school year? And two Long Island school districts are hacked, and one of them is forced to pay $88,000 in ransom. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, is your district taking the proper steps to secure your student data? We have two experts that will give us some tips. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the hardest working principal in the lower 48, Christina Pollard. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. You've got two boys that play football. Yes. So like what was last weekend? And when I say weekend, I mean Friday through Sunday because you got one in high school. I think we have to start with Thursday. Okay. Is that when it starts? Well, my husband coached on Thursday. Okay. So I'm following JCJC on Thursday night only to fly from work on Friday. My youngest son's playing varsity ball. That's a long night. Pop up early Saturday morning and head to Starkville for Mississippi State versus USM game. I have a, my oldest son is a starting right tackle. My youngest son was a Mississippi State recruit for the weekend. So, okay, so so everyone's make sure they're following. Your your oldest son plays for Southern Miss, who was playing MSU. Yes. And your youngest son was being recruited by the team that he was playing, which yes. is Mississippi State <laughs> University. Yes. So what was that like? Um, it was very interesting. I could not wear black and gold. We could not cheer. We had to restrain ourselves. I mean, did, did you not wear black and gold because it was the wrong thing to do? or I think it would have been... Like, disrespectful right i got that that makes sense and so were there like jokes made about how one son's playing for this team and we're recruiting um not so much but the hostesses when they realized where we were from i think they tried to fish a little bit and say oh i guess you're happy to be here this particular weekend huh right and i just tried to play like well what do you mean (laughs) so so the one that's in high school he's pretty serious about playing in college he is he is that's good now that's exciting Let's go ahead and uh, jump into the teacher's lounge. What do you know? What's going on around the country? Well, you know, a teacher shortage is affecting everyone across the nation, but it's even more difficult in rural areas. There's a school district in Wisconsin that is just struggling to fill their teacher positions. You know, you have to think about rural areas. It's not really desirable to live in an area where you don't have lots of shopping options, lots of dining options. And so convincing young people to come there and start their teaching career, it's a struggle. I mean, we have listeners from all over the country. Um, we have a lot of listeners in California and Texas. Uh, and of course, Texas, you have a mix. And even in California, you have a mix of both urban and rural. But I think those folks who live in the city um, may not realize the struggle that these rural districts, we might even be getting hit harder. I, I, cities have their own issues, and, and usually that's probably cost of living. Um, but like, what's it like? I mean, you teach in, you're like right on the line, I guess what I would call rural in an urban area, right? Even some of the, the schools in your county would be considered rural and some not, I guess, right? Well, that's very true. The community that I serve in, um, it's it's high poverty. It's not booming. You you won't see houses, um, you know, being built, subdivisions popping up here and there. But I think it's even worse in some areas across the nation where um, their populations are declining. They're just really struggling economically. This teacher shortage issue, I mean, it's it's been talked about time and time again, uh, all across the country. But I mean, is there a solution? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, There's a lot of factors playing into the teacher shortage. We have to first respect the profession and we have to pay teachers for the quality work that they provide. And I think that's the number one issue that we're seeing just across the board. If we could raise the teacher salaries and teachers could feel more supported in their effort, I think we could see a turnaround um, in this shortage. There was a, an opinion article, and I, w- I want you to give me your thoughts on this. I'm going to read from it. It was in Forbes magazine. And um, this guy, he writes, we need to stop saying we have a teacher shortage. And really, he's 
not saying that we don't have a teacher shortage. He's saying we need to quit calling it a teacher shortage. And his rationale is this. He says, you can't solve a problem starting with the wrong diagnosis. If you can't buy a Porsche for $1.98, that doesn't mean there's an automobile shortage. If I can't get a fine dining meal for a buck, that doesn't mean there's a food shortage. And if I appropriately skilled a humans don't want to work for me under the conditions I've set, that doesn't mean there's a human shortage. And, and you kind of follow what he's saying here. In other words, we got to pay for, for what teachers cost. What, what's going to bring those numbers up? You're exactly right. I think when you look at it from an administrator perspective, we use the term shortage because the pool of candidates is so small from us for us to choose from. But if you look at it in a more um, broad perspective, he is absolutely right that if we would purchase, pay for what we're really wanting, then I think that we would see a turnaround. I've known a lot of teachers and, and I remember even when they first get started, and I've known teachers to switch schools, they were really nervous about the interview process at that time. It was competitive. I mean, they would talk about how they would have to sit in front of a panel of people and, you know, kind of go through this whole process. Is it still competitive or is it is it like you're MSU and you're trying to recruit? That's exactly teachers? it. It's still competitive depending on the position they're applying for, but it's a major recruiting deal now. I mean, you are selling your school, your vision, and what you hope to be able to bring to them to support them as a teacher. So while you're asking questions about their skill and their ability, at the same time, they're looking to know if you are worth the risk leaving the school that they're either currently serving or starting their career with you. With so many options available, you've got to be a recruiter as a principal. I mean, so what's have you kind of figured out your your, I don't want to call it spiel, but you, you, your message to a new candidate? Well, I think the message is always authentic when you're really serious and passionate about your school and the students students in the community that you're serving. Now, you know, I, I have an inside track on it. I'm a coach's wife. I've been a part That's of the recruiting point. process for almost 18 years. And it's not the same as trying to sell a car. Um, it's really about providing what people are looking for. So you say, do I have my spill down? I'm extremely honest about the community they're coming in. I'm extremely honest about the challenges we face, but I'm also very honest about the type of people I'm looking for to come and serve the children in my school. And I just think that that passion and energy just really comes out. Do you think that you're a better recruiter slash principal because of what you've learned from watching your husband do the same thing with football? That's an interesting question. I'd say yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. like what's something that you, you've picked up that they do that you've kind of taken and run with maybe? I mean, you need to do your research about the candidates that you're interviewing. Mm -hmm. It's no more just having a stack of resumes on your desk and you just kind of flip through. And if someone says something you like, then they stand out more for a second interview. You've got to dig deeper in your research in checking out the references, um, asking teachers to model a lesson, um, inviting them to your campus and showing them not just talking about what you what your vision is or what you're trying to do at your school. School. I think it is a skill that I brought to the table as an administrator. Um, being a coach's wife has helped significantly, but I have to say that former administrators that I worked under also modeled greatly. Um, having worked in one of the largest school districts in the state of Mississippi, I'm sure they received anywhere from three to 4,000 applications every year. Mm -hmm. There are many applicants that didn't even get a phone call. But even with that, you are aware of a high-quality veteran that's out there that has options um, and so I was able to observe some great principals um, go after high quality candidates. I mean, I felt like when I was recruiting re reporters in our newsroom, it was I knew it was the most important thing I probably did. It, it could completely change the trajectory of of our newsroom, you know, the people that you hire. And you do have an opportunity to to pull back if you need to. But I just knew that I really needed to put a lot of focus on that. And in my interview process, I remember, you know, there were, there were certain key questions, but I was always trying to kind of drilling on is somebody passionate about what do they love what they're going to do are you the same way is that what you're looking for i am a teacher yeah one of the things that we've we've learned from research is that you can't teach heart you mm -hmm. can build someone's skills and help them get better at it but you can't teach someone how to have heart and compassion for the service that they're providing i, I remember and i don't mean to cut you off but i remember steve jobs once said um, when things get hard sometimes you'll quit if you don't love it 
But mm-hmm. if you love it, you'll you'll keep going. And That's right. I, I imagine it's got to be the same for teaching. It's got to be the same for teaching because you're serving the same. If you're an elementary teacher, you have anywhere from 20 to 27 children in a classroom that you are going to serve every single morning at 8 a.m. You can't just quit. You're in a contract. And it's beyond just the contract. These children depend on you. They look forward to seeing you, even if they don't show it. So back to this article. This was in the USA Today, I believe. Um, and... It's basically saying, you know, rural schools are struggling. Do you agree with that overarching theme from that article? Or do you feel like "Eh, it's probably equal across the board? And what are your thoughts there? No, I don't think that it's equal. They have other circumstances that they're struggling with that you won't see in urban areas. In the rural community, I mean, think about how far the residences are are from the school? How far do they have to drive for groceries? What options do they have for entertainment, uh, instructional resources for their children? How far do they have to drive to get, you know, to a tutor? And so when you're graduating from college and you're ready to start that teaching career, you also want to live in a great place. How will you find a mate if there aren't very many people there for you to socialize with? The populations in rural areas are dropping. Yeah, it, it is definitely tough. And and I think, again, it, it always seems to go back to pay. And and I just hope our leaders are listening. Like I hope and I hope they are really looking at the numbers and seeing the effects. Uh, well, we talk about the leaders looking at them at the funding. But in areas like that, where the community is not producing a lot of, you know, incoming funds, that's an issue, too. Um, for instance, you know, where I serve now, it's a county school district. Mm. So you look at the supplements provided to teachers, it's different than it may be in the city schools. Funding is determined by where you are and the number of children that you're serving. So you look at a rural school district, if they can't pay teachers even close to the national average, they're not going to want to stay. I, I guess, am I hearing you right? You're saying you... If I, and this probably is the case. You live right next to a city that probably pays better than the county. The teacher salary scale in our state is the same for anyone okay. all over the state. But every district has a different supplement that this added on top of the salary. And that's determined by where you are. So I guess if if a teacher is you know looking at one district in a county and they know they could also go to this one in the school district where it's paying – $3,000 more. And that's probably about the difference. I would exactly. Imagine. And, and so how do you win that teacher over? You know, it's not about the money. Like what's the conversation you have? It's got to be more than just about the money because money comes and goes. It's got to be about the type of support, yeah. what type of leadership support they'll receive, professional development, but it's also location, um, number of children they're going to serve, what resources and technology do they have access to? That's probably a big one. You're right. It's a good point. Well, speaking of technology, um, how much do you have to worry about the data in your district being compromised? Do you ever like, are you ever part of those conversations or is that more at like district level? No, we're a part of the conversations and so are teachers. Um, we're always concerned, for example, um, about FERPA, um, worried about student data being compromised at all times. And we try to take measures to prevent that from happening. I imagine um, you guys probably get told about like potential phishing scams. That's probably a big thing, right? Yes. Sometimes we'll get emails that make absolutely no sense to us. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you can tell that there's someone trying to, to hack our network. We have a really strong tech director that stays on top of that. I haven't seen as much of it, I want to say, in maybe the last six months. But a couple of years ago, it was, it was it was pretty annoying. I bring that up because just recently published up in New York, a Long Island school, uh, or really two schools on Long Island, um, were hacked. And they were, they were separate districts, but both on Long, Long Island. But they were forced to pay, or one of them was forced to pay $88,000 in ransom via cryptocurrency. It's pretty interesting. So their their main server right before school started was hacked, and they, they shut it down. And they basically were like, if you want access to any of your teacher or student data, you're going to have to pay us X amount of dollars. This one district had um, insurance that actually could help, you know, pay the ransom, which I didn't even know existed. I didn't know some school districts were carrying that. Did you, were you aware of this? I'm, I'm sure that the, every district has insurance that covers a number of concerns. Right. But this one, it just kind of caught me off guard. So basically what happened was the insurance company apparently negotiated the price lower um, with the wow. hackers, you know, and um, brought that price down to 88 grand. And then the district had to turn around and pay the insurance company $10,000 because they had a $10,000 deductible. Um, but it, they seemed, I don't want to say happy, but they were kind of like, you know, we'll, we'll take it. 
Um, um, it makes you ask a few questions. Go ahead. Number one, what type of cybersecurity did they have in place? How often they checked its, you know, strength mm-hmm. and the effectiveness of whatever they had in place. So perhaps their reason for being willing to pay that deductible, have their insurance cover it, which definitely raised their premium for the future. To me, someone slacked. So you're right. And the other district that was also hacked, um, they had done something differently than the one that had to pay the insurance company. The one that was, um, the other one actually had been backing up their data on the regular. I don't know if it was daily or weekly or whatever. And then they would store that backup on a totally separate server in a totally separate place, probably that no one would even know about and probably wasn't even connected to anything. So when they hacked the other district, they were kind of like, Nah, we'll kick them out, you know, block them, put up new firewalls or whatever, and then they restore all that data. And the other district that had to pay wasn't able to restore that data, so it was basically held ransom. Should have been a huge learning experience for that district. It, absolutely, and I think that's why I wanted to talk about it on this show. It should be a learning experience for all districts. This is episode 117, and so back on episode 91, um, we had done an episode where we brought in our, our special guest, our, our Bright Idea segment, was with people who really understood the ins and outs of school security. And you actually probably know both those people. One was Russ Davis, the CEO of School Status. Yes. And the uh, the other one is Dane Conrad, who, um, do you know him? Yes. He used to be the like head of, I guess, IT. Yes, head of, of technology a, in yeah, several school districts. Right, right. So, so they both were great guests. And I don't know that how many people like listen to it. And it's kind of something that I think sometimes maybe like a teacher or a principal might turn off in their mind, like, oh, I'm going to stop. I'm, I don't need to worry about the security in my district. Someone else takes care of that. True. But I want you to listen to this because we're going to replay that episode. We're going to replay that segment of that episode because it's that important and they offer so much good advice. And what I would do if I were a principal or in a district office or even a teacher, I would be like just kind of taking some notes and you don't have to understand like what they're saying as right. much as you need to turn around and say, go to your IT person and say, hey, are we doing this? Are we backing up our data on the regular? Are, you know, are we sending out... Are we, are we testing our teachers? That's what they talk about. They test the teachers with fake phishing emails, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting little interview, and I've got to get it back out there. So stay tuned for this. Our guests in today's Bright Ideas segment are two gentlemen very well-versed in the world of student data, as well as the security surrounding that data. We have Dane Conrad, who used to serve as the director of technology at a few different large school districts, and now he's the technical onboarding specialist at School Status. And we have our very own Russ Davis, the CEO of School Status, who has a deep understanding in the challenges that school districts all around the world face. Russ and Dane, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Hey. Um, yeah, glad to be here too. We stumbled across this article in Ed Surge, and what that article article was about was it was basically saying that a cybersecurity incident strikes K through twelve schools nearly every three days. Do you guys believe that 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 is the case from your experience? Yeah, nationally or even internationally, I'm sure that's probably uh, not too far off the exact point. Yeah. Russ, what do you think? Uh, I, I think I would be surprised if it wasn't more because I think a lot of it probably isn't isn't um, disclosed, I guess, openly. So I, I think about things, Dane, like a laptop getting stolen that may have had student data on it. Right. And I know that most districts don't use, you know, any kind of whole disk encryption unless they're using like a Mac or something like that because it's kind of a pain in the imaging process to deal with. Um but I'm honestly, I'm surprised it's just only every three days. I think it happens much more frequently, but is it just never makes the media. Do, do you think it's a bad idea? And I know you guys may be conflicted with your answer here, but do you think it's a bad idea for legislators to be like, school districts should be tracking and disclosing this. When they think they have a data breach, they should be required to report it. Uh, I think most most law most states already have laws in the books about it that you should you know re- have reasonable disclosure that if a you know there's a breach that's occurred that almost assuredly data was accessed. Um, for instance, if somebody steals a laptop and it's encrypted with you know good encryption and a good password, I don't necessarily think that that is necessarily necessary for disclosure. Um, you know, I. I I just think it's unlikely that somebody's going to get access to that data, especially if you have like remote kill capabilities for like laptops and phones and things like that. Dane, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, as far as the legislature goes and existing laws, 
there's probably some regulation there already. Um, and I know I agree with what you were talking about about data breaches not being disclosed. I was at a leadership summit in Chicago last summer, and there so there were leaders from around the United States that, and, and there was a session devoted to cybersecurity and data breaches. And I was a little bit surprised by the number of people attending. And these were from large districts, uh, super districts, if you want to call them that, who uh, replied back to the question about how do you publicize or how do you respond and let the public know. And and in more than one case, those IT professionals were saying, we don't, we chose not to disclose, we keep it quiet, don't tell the public, which I thought... um, has it has some very dangerous implications going forward um if something is actually used from that data breach and then sure. it, then it's a double whammy back on the district that not only did you not tell us but now it's being used against us and so there's a, some liability there i'm sure this leads me to one of my questions actually so do people even understand what type of data is at risk like what what can our students data like what could expose them and then actual personnel, teachers, and so forth? Well, I I think the blast radius for students is actually fairly low. There's definitely more data there, but it's really, I mean, it's not terribly valuable right now, in my opinion, um, to to, anyway, third parties, because if you think about like where most data breaches occur, they're really kind of huddled around financial crimes, right? Somebody's looking to steal your email address and password if you reuse it on a site, They'll hack a database of another company and um, then, you know, try that on PayPal or your banking institution or whatever the case may be. And, you know, they're trying to transfer $800 in your PayPal account, right? Like, I think that is the most common occurrence. Um, You know, I think in this case, we see a lot of risk around employee data. So phishing is a real problem. In fact, if you email any school district in the U.S. just about now, Whenever they reply, they'll have an external um, tag on the front of that message. And the reason they do is so that people know that this message didn't come from outside. So, for instance, even at school status, we get phishing attempts and all the time or, you know, basically impersonation where um, somebody will send a message to our chief financial officer asking her to wire money. Right. And in our company, only I have that authority, right? Um, Or asking for her to send me the W-2s for all of our employees for last year. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a policy in place that that just, we just don't transmit that email over, we just don't transfer that information over email. And most school districts, I'm sure, should adopt a similar policy if they have it. But that's usually where the data breaches are occurring. So if I'm hearing you right, like as for students, I mean, unless you're, say, president of the United States, there's really not a whole lot of value into like your, your, your grades and your transcript, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it will be valuable. I think if you take, you know, the socials of students and, um, you know, you, you wait a few years, they'll be valuable. But honestly, for most school districts in the country, you're not required to give them your social. In fact, I, I don't, I wouldn't if my child were going to school because I just don't think it's a necessary indicator. Yeah, uh, Dane, what, what say you? You're closer to this than I am. Yeah, we tried to get away from putting Social Security uh, numbers for students in our SIS, Student Information System, but there are probably still districts that do that. Uh, and one of the reasons why we got away from that was because of uh, the data breach uh, possibility and, and just having that information for students. Now, the um, the richness for student information from a criminal aspect, if that social security number is there, is high though, because um, if you think about it, uh, if somebody steals my identity and they might they use my social security number, uh, typically at some point, I'll fumble upon it. So I'll see sure. information being accessed on my credit card or my debit card, mm. or I'll get credit card replies. Um, but for a student, they're not necessarily in that environment. So if a criminal gains access to a student information system that does include that does include PII information, then it can be years before they stumble upon the actual criminal use of it. So they go to apply for their first loan for a car or uh, they're applying for a job and suddenly they have bad credit score and it's because their credit information has been generated on that 
fall on that theft and then it's being used criminally and and now they have to sort of recognize and uh, adjust to that criminal behavior. Well, let's call that pro tip number one. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're a school district, you should be checking with your, I guess, technology director and saying, are we storing social security numbers in our SIST? And if we are, why? Like, is, right. it, is there a necessity to do that? And, right. and you're saying probably not. Probably right? not, no. Okay. So uh, Russ mentioned phishing attacks. Um, that's, uh, I'm going to try to explain this to somebody like they're trying to explain it to myself, but it's basically where somebody gets an email and it's like, I need the, your password. And it looks as if it's coming from somebody important, somebody within the school district might be from your technology director. Right. But the fact is, it's it's a different address and it just has that look and they're just trying to fish, literally, right. and, and get that information. Am I understanding well, this right? It, that's correct. And, and a good example would be if the most recent one is just using, they'll register a domain that has similar characteristics. So um, it'll be Russ at schoolstatus.com but the O's are zeros, right? Mm-hmm. So you get this email and you kind of look at the header and yeah, it looks close enough. And, you know, you're kind of wondering, do I respond? This is my boss, you know, and he's right. telling me to do this right away. Um, like we get, re- we get requests and people to say, Hey, this is Russ, go to this store and buy gift cards and send me the numbers. Cause I want to send it to someone. Right. Like those are usually pretty good red flags, but in the moment, when you know it's not uncommon for us to use a gift card as a giveaway at a trade show. So if they hit the trade show person, which they have before, right. then they may be likely to do that. It's all about user education. And um, I want to hit on something that Dane talked about. Dane said that they um, got rid of social security numbers and their sis that the district was from. That is a good risk mitigation strategy. So that like there's some information that schools are allowed to disclose under FERPA, uh, directory information. Um, what student, the student's name, what grade they're in, that sort of thing are generally allowable unless a parent opts out under directory information. Where they live and stuff like that generally isn't. But if something gets out and you say, look, this is what they got was directory information only, and that's already publicly available, that's a pretty good public narrative as opposed to they got directory information and that student's social and birthday, right? Like birthday, yeah, you're definitely gonna have to track. But the social, we're not saying don't keep their social, we're saying keep it in the vault, right? Don't put it in electronic form. You know, most every school has a vault, has a secure room that has a sign in and sign out procedure, and it's watched fairly closely. Um, and it's usually that student's cumulative folder and that sort of thing. Put it in there. Um, that's one of those things where going like low tech can actually reduce risk. Mm-hmm. Dane, to prevent phishing, I think Russ said it's user education. Did you guys like frequently send out emails reminding employees like watch out for these things? Yeah, there's some there's some great companies that uh, districts are generally aware of. One of those um, that we would get uh, solicitation emails from, and then actually followed up and and used occasionally was no before no before dot com, uh, and they'll they'll even besides supplying. Uh, flyers and PDFs that you can pass out or electronically send out to try to educate users about phishing. Um, they'll also run phishing uh, attacks, more or less. So, oh, like basically like testing the system. Yes, exactly. Ah, so, that's cool. That's cool. So you sent you you um, work with them and they'll prepare like a phishing email and they'll send it to your users and then you'll get uh, statistics back about how many people clicked on the link. How did you know who, like in your district, like did they, so you could go educate that person on a one-on-one basis? Yes. It, was it ever a surprise to you or was it kind of the no, usual suspects? It's never a surprise because it runs the gamut. Uh, I mean, the, we try to educate, but they're the general public. I mean, it's no, there's been tech directors I know that have uh, accidentally given uh, data uh, or information out uh, innocuously. Uh, never was in, uh, the type of data that could hurt anybody, but, uh, you have foibles all the time. So they're just as much, even your best educated user can accidentally click on something occasionally. It happens to everybody, right? So recently I'll give you an example. I work in this space, right? I have a, um, a vulnerability, uh, management company that basically scans district perimeters looking for security flaws, things like that, that are known. And recently I was staying in a hotel and I got a call at 11 o'clock at night and it was from the phone on my desk at the hotel. And they said, Hey, this is the front desk. There's something with your credit card. 
we don't have the CVV right. And they basically teased out all the information on my credit card piece by piece. Mm -hmm. Very apologetic, very nice. You know, basically said they were going to credit me the night back. And then I hung up the phone and was like, oh, no. Yeah. So I called the, I called the front desk and they were like, no, absolutely not. You just got and scammed. It turned, I, I just got scammed. So I immediately called and canceled my credit card. And they, of course, American Express issued a new one. It's my corporate card, which is real pain in the behind if, if you're a company. And so, you know, it can happen literally to anybody. That was the first time I was like, oh, like I, it was late. I, you know, yeah. like my, my, you know, kind of spidey sense wasn't going off because I was woken from a dead sleep. Well, the fact that and, it wasn't um, in an email too, you got, you got approached like person to person. That, yeah. you know. It was. And the person was very nice and there was crowd noise in the background uh -huh. and they sounded like they were downstairs in the lobby. I mean, I'm just, you know, it was really, wow. it was really good, but very, they got me cold. Very and, you, know, you read about this stuff and I knew about that, you know, I knew about that vulnerability and it was piece by piece by piece. And of course, you know, I reported it to the front desk and, you know, they had a policy against transferring people through. And so there was an investigation going on. It's still pending. It was in Memphis at a very popular hotel in Memphis. And um, anyway, it was just, it was a surprise to me. And that was the moment you want to talk about developing empathy, right? That right. develops instant empathy. You're like, oh, this could happen to anybody. I'm guessing that hotel had ducks. Is, is I'm gonna go they, the Yeah, it is a very popular hotel <laughs> yeah. that may have ducks. Yeah. Right. Um, so the Ed Surge article mentions a, a denial of service um, attack. Is that just basically clogging up your website? What, what do they mean by that? It's clogging up the network. So I know the article mentions that, and, and I remember when it happened, or one like it, that a student... Uh, and the story that I read about was during the spring assessment window, and they did not want to take the state assessments. Oh, wow. So this guy, the young student, uh, engineered a denial of service attack against the school network. And so during the assessment window, suddenly, because a lot of these assessments are online now, and they depend on some kind of network connection out to the internet. And when that denial of service attack happened, it just flooded the network so that online assessments couldn't reach out and get and reply back. So for all intent and purposes, he shut down testing for that day. So this one's not really doing damage to the network, but it is slowing things down and, it, and it's causing a major hiccup. But if I remember right, even a few years ago, I think the FBI had had their website, FBI.gov, actually hit with a – is it called a DNS? Is that right? A, a DDoS, DDoS. Okay, DDoS. And where basically people just flooded the website, so to speak, so no one could access the homepage. Right. But the headline that's, was the FBI's website was hacked. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's probably not – I mean, what districts are – to say in that situation is that there's really no disclosure information. They'll say the firewall acted exactly as it should. Yeah. And usually what they do is that they'll they'll get the not the IP address of the website because they're smarter than that now. They know that the website is usually hosted by some third party and it's usually behind a service like Cloudflare, which helps mitigate that risk. But they'll get the actual IP address. They'll do like what is my IP address.com and they'll get their IP address and that way they know the actual IP address of the router. And they'll just send junk traffic to it. And even if that router is set up not to respond to that junk traffic, there is still a rule there that has to be processed, a deny rule. And if you send, you know, not hundreds, but millions of these a second, it'll overwhelm almost any router that's out there. And so that's really when your choice of ISP becomes really important. If you're looking for like a bargain basement ISP, just the cheapest price for bandwidth, bandwidth is bandwidth is bandwidth. That's not always the case. Often... Um, these, your like ISP, who you buy your internet from often has like intrusion prevention and detection systems. And so truly they should be able to stop it on the upstream level. And, um, sometimes it's, they're really very difficult to, to stop because they're, it's just the D and DDoS is just the first D is distributed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's coming from all over the place. And it's like, like, uh, if you ever are on Reddit or one of those sites and you go to click on a website and it's down. It's basically DDoSing that site. There are, you know, whereas that website all the traffic. is traffic. Yeah. That's right. That website's designed to have a thousand people access it at any given time and all of a sudden a hundred thousand people access it because it hits the front page of Reddit. It's a very similar thing that happens in a school district. It, but it's it, not necessarily a data disclosure, right. which is what most people think about. So this one's probably not it, it can happen. Is there any really safeguards, but it's nothing major to worry about. Is there anything you can do to really prevent it other than have a good ISP? And, and for those that don't know, ISP's internet service provider, right? Yeah, you need a good internet service provider. You need to have your firewall tightened up. Um, also, denial of service attacks can occur from the inside. And that's kind of what I have a company called SchoolScan. And 
we scan that stuff internally as well. But that's really where your biggest risk profile, yeah, you're going to get DDoS on the outside. You have a firewall there. But what happens when somebody's inside your firewall, right? How do you protect against it then? You have to start doing like switch access control lists. I mean, there's a bunch of like technical stuff you can do, but you really need to understand the nature of the risk and limit access um, down to like as far as far away from your core network as you possibly can. You need to be pushing the risk out there and risk detection out there. Does that make sense? Like you don't want you don't want a student to be able to log on to your network and get the same privilege as your accounting department, for instance. It is, like they really never need access to your accounting server. That's is, a good example. Is school stand basically like you, you guys are are doing audits for the district? Is that we we do audits as a portion of it, but the majority of it's automated. So here's the deal: every day. Thousands of pieces of software we discover, like not when I say we, I mean the internet at large discovers security flaws. And this software is used everywhere. So like, for instance, the Equifax, uh, everybody's aware like of the Equifax disclosure, right? right? Where they disclose the credit profiles of almost everybody in the U.S. who had one, right? And that wasn't due to somebody at Equifax, um, you know, copying that on a flash drive and taking it out of their place. They have protections against that. It was because there was a piece of software that was used on their on their back end that happened to be forward facing, meaning people could access it from the internet. And there was a known vulnerability that had been fixed years before. But because they were not scanning for that vulnerability or had they actually in their case they did scan for it and just ignored it, then somebody was able to exploit it and get and override the security mechanisms built into that software. And this happens every single day. And so what SchoolScan does is we just kind of scan the perimeter of the network, the firewall, the biggest pieces of equipment for these known vulnerabilities, and we disclose those uh, so that people can fix them. And often, it's just a matter of like, Dane, how many devices did you have in your school that you were responsible for? Thousands. Thousands, right? It's overwhelming, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are the chances of you getting good patch management on every single one of those devices? Uh, Pretty low. (laughs) <laughs> and so I want, I want everyone Every listening, one. when you say like, I just want everyone to understand, I'm going to try to bring this down a little bit. When you, you're saying Sorry. patch management, you're meaning like, all right, so people know that these vulnerabilities are out there. And as a technology director, it's kind of your responsibility to, to no, go. No, it's to, absolutely our responsibility. It, to go to, yeah, it's 100% your, yeah. your okay. job. So you're supposed to go to thousands of devices and update them, essentially, well, right? That's why it's really important to have enterprise management. So the majority of those devices for us have been Chromebooks. And Google has a really strong admin console so that I can easily manage, those users can easily manage those devices. Uh, the real uh, honeypots for, you know, these data breaches, though, a lot of times is a server-based device. Yep. And those aren't as, as um, many in most districts. So we might have 10 to 12 servers uh, and along, let's say, uh, 100 network devices, routers and switches, and firewalls and all that. So, um, you know, thousands of devices do exist, but really, generally, we're really concerned about that core uh, server and routing and switching environment. Um, but it's important to have, Russ has mentioned firewalls already, the the newer types of firewalls, you know, we're notorious in education for using something until it just dies. Mm-hmm. But um, we there's so much technology available in the, the newer firewalls that allow you to get insights into uh, end-user traffic. So those devices that you're managing that are so many, um, you can break up that traffic and really get insight into where it's coming from internally and externally, and then what kind of traffic it is and then react to it. So that's really important in addition to the the scanning that, that Russ is talking about. So Russ, your your product, once it finds a vulnerability, d- does it give the end user or your customer the opportunity to write there in the report, click on it and patch it, or at least read about what the vulnerability is? Yeah, absolutely. They can read about what it is, and it has actually a section on, here's what to do to patch that piece of software. And the scary part is when you look at one and it goes, there's no fix for this, right? Like this software has been deprecated, meaning that it's no longer supported. So you need to stop using that software. Well, what if that piece of software is running our accounting server, right? right? You can't stop using it. What do you do then? And so that's why like in education, a lot of the, like whenever I was a technology director 
back in like 2001 through 2003, four, um, we like had like servers everywhere. Right. And we would buy software. We'd put it on the servers. You know, we really didn't do a good job of patch management, meaning like keeping that software up to date because there weren't a lot of good solutions out there. And we ran a big windows, um, network. And so you'd have something like, um, I forgot what, the, forgot what it was called, like Red Alert or something like that. You'd have a worm that would make its way through our network, and we just really couldn't stop it. And, you know, it was really a, a bad time. Well, now most modern school districts um, work to keep as much stuff as they can in the cloud. Like, they're not managing email servers. Probably 90% of the districts now either use Office 365 or Google Mail as their mail platform, and they don't have a mail server. And so Google's already doing some things or Office 365 is already doing some things for you there. The more that you can push into the cloud, the better it is from a patch management perspective because you're hoping that vendor's doing their job, but it doesn't necessarily decrease your risk. In fact, I think it, and sometimes it increases your risk because you have more hands that, you know, you have, instead of dealing with one security policy within a district, you may be dealing with 50 or 60 security pro- security policies at the, the district level. And the truth is, is that most districts just don't know how to contain that risk and they don't even track the security policies. Like there are pieces of software in use for education today that I can name, but I don't want to get sued. Right. Um, that are just terrible pieces of software that have known vulnerabilities and are very buggy and, but they're cheap and no one's going to stop using them anytime soon. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and let me ask this and, and probably a better question for Dane. Like, is this too big of an undertaking for school districts? Like, I mean, you go to these conferences, are, are your colleagues saying, you know, like, we don't know what we're doing? Well, I mean, typically in the education environment, those staffs are smaller than they need to be. Uh, so your ratio of a, a technician um, or even a network administrator to the number of devices uh, varies from school district to school district uh, and from state to state. But I think the general trend is that most are understaffed. So you do have uh, fewer people with their hands on the equipment or their hands in systems that are being managed or even aware of, you know, reporting that might come from some of the the security devices that you might and systems that you put in place. Um, So that's always a challenge. And you've got uh, network administrators. They're also systems analysts. So they're maintaining virtual servers and servers, uh, physical servers. So uh, generally everybody's overtaxed, but it is still something that falls at the foot of the director of technology. And it's something they have to be aware of and try to, as Russ said earlier, mitigate as much as possible. The key isn't complete containment. Okay, that is impossible. You okay. cannot completely contain your security risk. That is not possible. The the this gold standard is mitigation. There's no like IPS, like which is intrusion prevention system, and IDS, which is intrusion detection system. Like those things will help, but they will not ultimately make you 100% secure. And no product will, and no person will. You just have to mitigate that risk as much as reasonable. Like, hey, if you want to get rid of security risk in a school district, why don't we just eliminate all computers, right? It's an impossible job um, to secure risk 100%, but it is completely attainable to mitigate the risk to an extent that is reasonable, right? That everybody would understand, like, this is the, like, if something happens, these are the steps that we took, and this is the things that we had in place. Where people run afoul, honestly, and I don't want to, like, pontificate here, is that a lack of clear policy? Like, what happens when there is a breach? What do we do, mm-hmm. right? Because often people make it worse and worse. Like they're trying to fix it themselves. Like if you, like if a server, there's a thing called CryptoLocker, right? Where if you run a, a malicious app on a server, or if you have admin rights in your network, it'll quietly go through and encrypt your server completely. And it actually happened to a school district here in Mississippi. Um, it'll completely encrypt that server and it will basically hold you rants. Like it'll say, Hey, send, you know, $10,000 to this Bitcoin address. Is, is this or, ransomware? Is this what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, this is yeah. ransomware, like okay. crypto locker, ransomware type stuff. And so like, what do you do? Well, fixing it may make it way worse. First of all, mitigate the risk by disconnecting that device from the network. And sometimes it's a matter of pulling the plug on everything. Like stop, like this is cancer. Let's, let's cut it off right now. And let's, bring up devices in a controlled environment one by one and seeing if they're infected and then, you know, kind of isolate the risk and contain it. 
before it infects our entire network. The problem is, is that most people don't have any kind of detection mechanism. And until somebody writes in, it's like, hey, I can't access any of my Word files. Then you go to that server and you see the crypto locker uh, or the ransomware text file in that folder saying, send me money or this file's gone forever. And, you know, that's when like having a good backup process, like if you can just say, we're not paying the ransom, we're going to restore from last night's backup. Right. That's one thing. But if you don't have those policies and procedures to ensure you're getting a good backup every night, you're screwed. There's no good way other than paying paying them off. Is that something you guys did, Dane? Did you like constantly back stuff up? Or, and if you don't feel comfortable answering that, that's fine. But. <laughs> yeah. So here's some exposure mitigation. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, uh, you may not tell people who are listening to the podcast how vulnerable or invulnerable some school districts are in Mississippi. Uh, yeah, I think generally most districts uh, certainly back up, have some kind of backup plan. Uh, the joke has always been a backup plan is only as good as your restore plan. So you can have all the sure. backups you want, but if you can't restore from them, and many times those aren't tested. Um, so even if you have a backup plan, then you still need to restore something every once in a while just to make sure it works. Mm-hmm. Um, along those lines, um, I was at a meeting uh, at Metis, which is the Mississippi Educational and Technology Innovation Symposium. It's put on by the Mississippi Department of Education a few years ago. And they invited a group um, that's really focused on this kind of policy creation, and it's called the uh, Privacy Technical Assistance Center. So it's PTAC. PTAC, all right. Formally, and so this group came in and ran scenarios with the with the conference participants about data breaches, um, and made this the personnel in the in the conference think about in their district. Um, how would you respond? You know, and, and each scenario was different variations on a data breach, whether it was all the HR information or if it was student information or maybe it was just a, a group of documents that were stored in a cloud, a Google Cloud. Yeah, so basically account. role-playing with Exactly. With but, but they're a resource that's available for districts to go to the site studentprivacy.ed.gov and they will uh, work with you uh, one-on-one at times, you know, if you want that. But also, certainly, if you're a person who, you know, does create conference sessions or something like that, it's a good group and it's a great resource to sort of make school districts uh, go through those scenarios, develop their response mechanisms, and, and really have something in place and know what to do when something happens. Right. I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours. And, and here's what I want. If somebody's listening to this and they want more of this, like, please email us and let us know. And we will do more. We will dive deeper into all these topics. I mean, I think today we've kind of covered the denial of service, the phishing. We've touched on the ransomware a little bit. We've we've thrown out a few tips and given a few resources, but but we can go deeper. So let us know if that's something that you want. I still want to get you both in on our pop quiz because you guys are our guest today. Sure. And um, we're going to do it quickly since there's two of, two of you here. But are you all ready? Do the pop quiz? Yes, let's go. All right. Let's do it. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Literature. Russ. I agree. Literature. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I'll, I'll take this with soft skills. Like, um, mm-hmm. I think that there is a real problem with, with folks that keep their face in a screen all day, and they, they lack some soft skills. Um, you know, how to how to handle social situations, you know, just, I think that that is something that's really, really lacking these days. True. Yeah. Agree. All right. What does every child deserve? Freedom. Uh, A shot at a good education. I mean, truly like they deserve a quality education. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, I'll, I'll take respect time. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I think that honestly, um, educators are not considered. I mean, a lot of these folks have master's degrees, and they're not considered professionals. They're considered, you know, these guys get, you know, two two months off in the summer. And I think that that is incredibly dangerous to our our nation and education in general. And that's exactly where my mental health concept comes from. The <laughs> right. fact that they don't get respect, that there's outside pressures put on the classroom all the time and their uh, freedom to teach the way they would like to teach is taken away. What's yep. the What's the best gift to give an educator? Practically gift cards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for school supplies and, and things like that. 
And I'm going to go with the somewhat impractical, which is time. Right. Um, I think that time is the number one thing that you can give someone. And a lot of that just comes from what Dane talked about, which is like you, if you're, if you're an administrator in a school district, it is your job to advocate for your staff. And when something is unreasonable or is going to add an unreasonable burden to them, you say, no, unless I'm ordered to, I'm just not going to do that. Here's why. And I think that that takes a lot of guts, but I think it's, these are my peeps, right? These are the people that, you know, I advocate for, this is my crew and I'm going to protect them. Which teacher changed your life? 11th grade English teacher. You want to say the name? Uh, Bobby Odom. Warren Central High uh, School. What did, what did Bobby Odom do for you that, that changed things? Um, sort of was the first person that held us accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Russ, how about you? Uh, two people. Unfortunately, I have to like split the answer. But fortunately for me, um, my mentor growing up was a teacher named Steve Sill. He was my eighth grade science or seventh grade science teacher. And he got me into computers in a big way, like programming, true programming. He gave me, I guess the statute of limitations has passed, but he gave me copies of like programming software, like Visual Basic. <laughs> and I learned how to program at a young age. And then secondarily, uh, a guy named George Wade, who passed away, unfortunately, about uh, almost 10 years ago now, um, who gave me a chance to be the network guy for our school district. And he went out and fixed computers while I did the network. And I was 16. And without that contribution, there is zero probability that I would have this company and do what I'm doing today. That's cool. Um, Last question, Dane, pen or pencil? Uh, Pen all the time. Russ, how about you? Pencil. Everybody makes mistakes. And, and since since I do have two computer guys, pen or pencil over computer, or does computer win out? Uh, it depends on the situation. I've gotten to the point now where I have a notebook that I keep a lot of notes in just because it's quicker and easier and I also so, doodle. Like you, yeah, you physically draw yeah. into a notebook. I also doodle and draw during meetings a lot of times. It's just a preoccupation. <laughs> Thank you, Dane. Russ, yes. don't you do the same thing? <laughs> don't you also walk around with a notebook? I absolutely walk around with a notebook. And where I learned that from when I worked at the State Department, um, I learned it from a guy named Steve Hebler. And you could go back at any point in his career and find what he was working on and the notes from that. And let me tell you, it saves my behind at least once a quarter where I can go back and reference a time and date that something happened. And so whenever I'm done with a notebook, I use a, I use a very specific notebook, spiral bound at the top. And at the end of it, I write the dates um, for the rep, for the range on that book, and then I save it so that if I need to go back and see what happened on a day, I can go back and look at the notes. Can't be hacked. Can't be hacked. Can't be hacked. That's absolutely right. <laughs> All right, guys. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. It was a, a fantastic interview. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. All see right. ya. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.